It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm co-hosting today's show with my colleague, Nikki Canning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning. And um, Nikki's joining me today because both of us have a um, very high intellectual interest in the phenomenon that sort of reached, I think, a tipping point called fake news. Today, we have three um, terrific guests, very specialized in this area, and our the the angle that we're approaching our topic of fake news is what is the role of fact checking in today's news landscape, and um, and we have with us to talk about that um, none other than someone from Politifact. We have their staff writer John Greenberg. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deborah. And um, so Politifact, I think you know if you live and work in Washington D.C., everybody knows and has heard of Politifact. Um, One hopes. Yeah. John's been with PolitiFact um, since 2012? Oh, actually, since 2011. Tw- 2011. And, um, and I've seen John on some um, web videos um, or podcasts, whatever we want to call them. I need to get more uh, modern about um, how I my dialogue here um, talking about this phenomenon, fake news. And so we're very um, pleased and honored to be able to have PolitiFact with us, John Greenberg. We have Lindsay Grace, who's an associate professor at American University, the founding director of AU's Game Lab and Studio. Good morning and welcome to our show, Lindsay. Good morning, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Lindsay has this incredible resume. If you go on, on the Fed Talk website and you check out um, the bio, that we've posted. Um, he has a terrific, interesting personal um, voyage to getting to be the director of the Game Lab. And on his Game Lab, they have the game Factitious, which I told Lindsay I played last night and failed. <laughs> and you didn't I have to share that, but that's And okay. I consider myself well informed, um, but I failed it. And it's. Um, and the strategies, which Lindsay calls the engagement strategies, very interesting um, principles and thoughts to bring into the issue of combating fake news. And so we're really looking forward to talking with you, Lindsay, about that. And then joining us um, by phone is Jennifer Preston. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. And Jennifer is with the Knight Foundation. In fact, she is the vice president of journalism at the Knight Foundation. She's been with them since October 2014. And prior to that, um, Jennifer was an award-winning journalist at the New York Times for almost 19 years um, and was the New York Times' first social media editor. Um, So good morning, Jennifer, and thank you for joining us by phone. Oh, thank you for having me. And so I think the first thing we should do for everything I've been reading up about this, um, and as I was saying to our guests before we got started, you know, as we sit here in Washington, D.C., you sit in the heart of the federal enclave. Um, And it's not just 
um, people who are government workers. It's um, policy people who um, are who try to inform both branches of government about um, issues to affect policy. There's the entire community that supports the federal government, including contractors that play a very important role in the work of government. And they're very concerned. This is a constituent that is very concerned about fake news. So as we started reading about this topic, what I saw happen was it starts with well, how do you define fake news? What is fake news? And Jennifer, I thought we'd start with you on that. Um, help us, help us um, with this concept and the definition, which I think has evolved a little bit over time. Sure. Well, first, fake news is not new. I mean, anyone who stood in a supermarket checkout line has seen supermarket tabloids proclaiming all sorts of things. But most of us walk on by and we don't buy it and we certainly don't don't share it. You know, fake news is misinformation, it's hoaxes, it's it's propaganda and and that certainly uh nothing new and it certainly didn't start in 2016, but obviously clearly the internet and new technology and social media platforms have made it easier than ever to create and share these viral deceptions. Mm. John, I'm interested to hear from you your perspective from um, working in the area of like sort of combating uh, in the world of politics. Um, Give us give us your thoughts on how to define fake news. Well, I I think that fake news, when it first hit the scene within the past few months, it initially was defined as news that is made up out of whole cloth. There's zero substance to it. Uh, And the reasons for it might be partisan or they might be money-making, but they were and may also just simply have been people who enjoy the attention they get from spreading fake news around. Uh, But, oh, and I guess I shouldn't leave out the possibility that there could be outside interference (laughs) from (laughs) entities uh, that want to manipulate public opinion. But setting those four elements aside, what we've seen is that people have started using the term in different ways. Yeah. They use it in ways to say, I don't believe that particular news story from an established news organization. And that is a very different way of thinking about fake news. Uh, And in fact, there are people who say the term should be discarded. Because uh, if you start saying, well, I don't like the substance of that news article, therefore it is fake news, that is totally different from the wacky stuff about the aliens um, had, Bill Clinton had a love child with the alien. I remember that from 25 years ago. Exactly, exactly. It was very popular. Um, But nobody took it seriously. That's genuine fake news. What we've seen this morph into is something much more complicated. Um, And I think we need to be very aware of that difference. Mm. And um, one of the things in getting ready for today's show, I was um, telling John that I watched a YouTube um, of a a, um, presentation that he did at the National Press Foundation Mm -hmm. very recently. And what I thought was very interesting about that, it was there was you had a colleague there from the Washington Post, 
um, and I believe it was her, she sort of first sort of talked about this evolution of how we use the term fake news from something that is just simply not true to today. It's getting used. I don't like that piece of information, so I'm going to call it fake. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a very interesting development. Yeah, and it and it actually speaks to one of the core problems because if you are going to sow distrust over any kind of information you don't like, that is a very bad way to erode the common ground of information that we all say, well, this is reality. You know, reality does exist. And we, as journalists, we will make mistakes. We're human beings. Engineers make mistakes. Lawyers make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes we will get it wrong. But most of the time, we're actually having, we're following a bunch of really good practices to make sure that we get it right. Mm -hmm. And just because you don't like the information, if if you call it fake news and put it out there with alien babies... That is a not a good place for the democracy to be in. Yeah, and, and I actually think it's purposeful. Well, obviously it's purposeful. And here's what I think is the purpose. And Jennifer, I'm sort of curious about your thoughts on this. I think that the reason why it's now being said, like, if I don't like this, the information, I'm going to call it fake, is to um, it's pivot and turn, right? It's I'm going to discredit it and turn everyone's attention somewhere else. But at the heart of it, it's to try you know, incrementally to discredit that news source. Jennifer, your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, one, I agree the term fake news should be discarded. Then the correct term um, at this moment uh, should be misinformation. And our concern should be about disinformation and uh, efforts made to uh, purposefully uh, deceive us. And that is not good for our our democracy, that's certainly not a good way to have a healthy information news and ecosystem. So what what is most important for an informed and engaged community, which is our mission at night and at night foundation at night foundation, is to help make sure that people have have accurate information. And so one of the questions that we need to address is how might we improve the flow of accurate information? But at the same time, in the field of journalism, we need to address the low levels of trust in journalism. Mm -hmm. And as journalists, we need to figure out Mm -hmm. what might we do to build that trust uh, in people in a way that that when something is reported um, in a trusted publication that they know it's correct and accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I we're certainly going to he- be heading in that direction um, as the show progresses, but we need to take our first commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. 
Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm co-hosting today's show with my colleague, Nikki Cannon. And if you've just tuned in, the topic of our show today is fact-checking in today's news landscape. And um, if you're going to do a show on fake news and fact-checking, I think we have the three best guests. We have John Greenberg from PolitiFact. We have Lindsey Grace, who's an associate professor at AU um, and the director of the AU Game Lab. And we have Jennifer Preston, who's the vice president of journalism with the Knight Foundation. Lindsay, I want to um, get your thoughts on um, the definition, which may have evolved in the last, <laughs> what, you know, eight weeks um, of fake news. Because I agree with Jennifer, like, you know, before the internet, which I actually remember life before the internet. Uh, I remember life before answering machines um, that, you know, that's what the newsstand was at a grocery checkout. And everyone knew that's not real. So that's actually a great analogy to start the conversation. So in the last two years, essentially what we've been doing is thanks to funding from the Knight Foundation, we've been looking at how news is being processed by sort of the consumer end as well as how it's being produced. And one of the things that we've noticed is that there's almost a conflation of source. So people are getting social media as feeds and they're not asking the key questions about where I got it. So when you saw that tabloid in the newspaper, in the, in the grocery store, you knew it was in the tabloid section and it was sectioned off. And what happens in social media is everything blends. Your New York Times article can sit next to a blog post and uh, web savvy uh, readers don't necessarily even know the difference between a blog post and an article produced by a, a reporter that worked on it for two years. So what we've been trying to do is actually try um, several attempts at uh, helping people discern the difference between these sources and also to help it's them. It's really hard. It is, actually. Um, what happens is uh, you need a little bit of tech savvy, actually. You need to understand how, how sources work, but you also need to understand how to read the content, uh, how to actually uh, uh, read how the report is being is issued. Uh, and so what we've done is we've created a couple of um, almost interventions or attempts to try and, and, and help resolve this issue. Mm. So I do want to spend a little bit of time and get your thoughts, Lindsay, with you first. How did we get here where um, – it's very foremost in many Americans' minds today, daily, um, the issue, the concern with um, fake news. How did how did we get to this? Well, I think how did we go from the tabloid at the checkout that everybody knew was fake and didn't sure. care got published to today, where the New York Times took out um, a major ad? Was it the oh, it was at the um, it was at the Academy Awards. They took out a major ad, which I think they, they, it was reported it was the first time ever that they had um, advertised yeah. at the um, at the award ceremony. So our, our researchers have actually been um, trying to address this problem in, in a variety of ways. And one of the things that we've noticed is that uh, content, content generation is actually fairly cheap. So if we talk about uh, the individual working in their basement creating fake news articles uh, for profit, uh, the cost of production is very low, which wasn't true 30 or 40 years ago. So one of the things that we talk about is this notion that while uh, content may be king, it was an expression that we used in sort of early days of the web, yeah. uh, the engagement strategies themselves it. are part of um, what, what keeps people there. So uh, the, the saying that I often bandy about is this idea that uh, if content is king, experience is the kingdom. And so what's novel about these fake uh, news articles is that they're interesting stories. They play to our confirmation bias. They're the things we want to hear. And so we spread them across social media because they feel good to spread. Even if we do have a little bit of a cast of, of doubt, we're not exactly sure this is true, something in there must be true, so I must share it with my friends. 
And what happens is that that culture almost um, propagates itself. So you get more and more people spreading this sort of fake news. And some people have taken advantage of this and, and ac actively turned misinformation into disinformation to propose, propose specific agendas. Mm. John, I'm curious about your thoughts on um, why um, there's the issue of for profit, right? Why, why do people, organizations, entities, why um, has there been an upsurge in intentionally creating fake news stories? Well, I think in, in the particularly in the realm of political discourse. Sure. Well, I think that there are a lot of different trends, and I also want to say that it's early days yet in the research on this. So anything that we all say, we all have to realize a lot more work needs to be done. But uh, first, let's just talk about the, uh, the technology base uh, with Facebook, with Twitter, has allowed individuals, literally individuals, to expand their reach. And the the notion that if in an increasingly partisan atmosphere and we can you can take a look at all of the trends that is a dominant one and it's been going on for about 30 years when you're in a partisan framework it's basically like i like my football team i don't like your football team and anything, one of my colleagues calls it um, a culture of tribalism it's it, whatever metaphor you like, what it is is that when that comes to the fore, it all comes down to I am putting this information out there to advance the interests of my team or to make your team look bad. Yeah. So in that atmosphere, people are have more motivation to do this. But let's not ignore the fact that it's very easy to make money <laughs> off of this. And with technology that people can readily get that will allow them to send out tweets and Facebook posts as they sleep, right? The automation of it allows them to drive traffic to a website and they'll make whatever money they make. Content, it can be dirt cheap in that environment, marginal cost of near zero, and yet the ad revenues are there. So you put in this sort of strange partisanship, you put in the uh, commercial interest and the technology, and you've got a formula for getting a lot of bunk out there. Mm -hmm. And I think also to, to, to add to that, this notion that you can also create followers, that you can have bots, basically automated people who will always say, oh, yes, I vouch for this. But they're not really people. They're just pieces of software. And people yes, can't tell one. the difference. Right? Very big one. Mm. Jennifer, I'm curious, from your perspective at the Knight Foundation, which um, um, I think, if I have this right, Jennifer, was founded in 1950, so virtually 60 years ago, and has always had at the heart of its mission promoting you know, accurate and credible journalism as a foundation for a good democracy. What, what's the view from the Knight Foundation of how we got to this point where many Americans really are concerned and believe fake news is a problem? Well... The Knight Foundation, as you said, was founded many years ago. Yeah. Um, it's a national foundation with strong local roots that was started by two brothers, Jack and Jim Knight, who published newspapers in more than two dozen cities around the country. And we invest in journalism, in the arts, and in the success of cities. 
But at the heart of our work are, as I had mentioned earlier, is the importance of an informed community. And that means the role of journalism um, must be uh, protected for us to maintain a healthy democracy. And for many years, we have, of course, been supporting fact-checking efforts. Uh, We're supporting the effort at American University because a big part of Knight's work is to figure out how we might engage people, um, users, uh, young people, um, in different ways around news and and information. So that's part of what we must do here is we need to respond as journalists to the changing ways that people are consuming news and information. We must help journalists build trust with their, with their audience. We have to acknowledge what has happened with the disruption of the business model for journalism in this country. We have lost reporters across the country. You know, lo- local journalism is in crisis. Earlier this week, we made a significant investment in local journalism in Detroit, um, supporting an innovative project up there that brings together public radio, uh, an award-winning online news site providing great local news. But we, what's happening here is it's all come together. We have a shortage of local news, a shortage of journalists, and we have these uh, now, new sites, you know, just manufacturing um, misinformation for profit. Yeah, and I, you know, Jennifer, I, I'm always a believer of maybe I should have been a medical doctor, but if we're having, if we have a symptom that if, you know, and the symptom is um, fake news, right? Um, and there's obviously a very big concern within the community of journalists, um, you know, to combat it. And I think John makes a good point that. They don't really have enough data yet about the phenomenon to really figure out the the fix. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the um, if you don't know how to define the problem and the cause of the problem, then you might not be that successful in treating it. And so when I read um, actually two things, I'd been thinking um, before before what I call the tipping point in January, where now it's like on everyone's you know, that's what everyone's talking about, fake news. Um, doing the work that we do at our law firm, representing federal officials at the heart of some of these quote unquote scandals that the media really drove in conjunction with um, politicians based often on just an untrue fact. I'd been thinking about how did we get here? How did we get to the point where journalists are repeaters, not reporters? They've been repeating what might be a political agenda without really the heavy lifting of getting to the bottom of a very crucial fact that they push out, right? Are veterans dying on wait lists, which everyone in our country thinks is yes, except the VAIG concluded no. Um, And so I do think it's that confluence of the digital age of well, media? At, at the same at the same time, let's just uh, note for the record that there are well documented problems providing health services. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, for Absolutely. Across America. So for and and we know that we know that because of some exceptional, uh, strong um, investigative reporting in that 
in that area, and and that's why we know that. So um, so there's a reason why journalism has been described as the fourth estate, yep. because we need journalism. Um, our government officials, our public needs journalism to provide those necessary checks and balances to make sure that the public knows right it's the window in to our veterans it's the window which is why we have you know we have a transparent we, we have a system of transparent laws into our government but for me i think about the pressure on journalism over the last decade with the advent of the 24-hour news cycle cable news and the internet that the pressure on journalists to push out stories, and I've talked to journalists about this, is really like often overbearing. Um, and so I wonder to what extent, Jennifer, you see that as an issue, like sort of the own, own internal self-policing inside um, the community of journalism to deal with their own like um, uh, contribution to um, this phenomenon. So, um, so I will say this. I was the first social media editor at the New York Times, and one of my um, uh, responsibilities was to help journalists uh, use social media to support Times-quality journalism. And so what does that mean? That means that you do not post anything on Facebook or you do not post anything on Twitter that you do not know is, is right. You know, I would often quote Bob Dylan. <laughs> If something's not right, it's wrong. If it's wrong, you don't put it on the Twitter, you don't post it on Facebook, and you certainly don't put it in print or say yeah. it aloud on a radio show or on a broadcast or on a Facebook live stream page. So, so the basics of journalism are more important than ever before. Mm-hmm. You know, getting it right before getting it first needs to be just imprinted in in you know a big poster in everyone's on just slapped on everyone's you know laptop or or phone so you have absolutely i could not agree more about how journalists mm-hmm. must um especially now given the spread of of misinformation and fake information and false stories that you know this these little machines and factories just producing this this junk it's eroding trust in our democratic institutions and we have to acknowledge that the way that they're that they're moving across the internet and that the role that major social platforms like facebook are playing in helping spread this false information just must be must be addressed. Yeah. I could not agree more that we have much to learn from uh, research on on how to address this. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that we do know, and we will need Facebook data. We will need researchers to uh, dive in to Facebook data to help answer, you know, those those very important questions. Yeah, and Facebook has has sort of stepped up recently, and I do want to talk about more about Facebook. And um, and the issue of public trust in the credibility of what's being reported, which has has had a substantial erosion. Um, um, but we do need to take our mid-show break. We'll come back and continue that conversation. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. We're talking about fact-checking in today's news landscape, um, an era of fake news. And before the commercial break, we were speaking with Jennifer Preston of the Knight Foundation about the sort of the cause, like what is the root, some of the root causes of this new this phenomenon now that everyone's been talking about. Lindsay Grace from American University, an associate professor there. I'd sort of like your thoughts on that. Sure. So one of the things I think is really interesting is essentially when we talk about this change in local news and this, this dearth of local news being produced, the bloggers in some way change that because the scope of the kind of news we're, we're um, perceiving, we're reading in social media has changed. So learning about uh, a small story in Detroit might actually go viral because the content is engaging and interesting. And so some of what happens with some of these blogger communities that generate these, this content, and, and honestly, we would admit sometimes junk content because it's not particularly journalistic, is that it's still an engaging story that drives people through. So as they're going through their news feed, they start to say, oh, I want to stop because this is sensational. It's interesting, right? It's again, it's a, it's a Clinton baby with an alien. So wow, I didn't know this was true. Um, <laughs> and what's really interesting is that a lot of the stuff that we've been doing in this, this JOLT initiative at American University is, is trying to combat that with um, new opportunities in engagement design. So as you were talking about this 24-hour cycle, one of the challenges is, of course, that you've got to keep people engaged. You've got to keep them locked in that whole time. And what we've done is applied game design, um, what we call game design thinking, to the production and communication of news. So we know, for example, that uh, a good game designer can keep you in a game for two weeks. Uh, we can keep you uh, on the leash paying just a little bit of money every time. You get something free to play. But if we, we get you for two weeks, all of a sudden you spent five bucks on it. So it's also a financial model. So what we've been trying to do is design and engineer experiences. Um, almost what we call engineered collisions between journalism and a lot of what we do in game design thinking to change the way that we use engagement strategies. So the old engagement strategies might be breaking news um, or it might be uh, great headlines. And what we're actually finding is that uh, piecing content out and giving people new experiences that they can only get through um, a provider actually really work well. So um, one example is we did this work with the uh, local uh, NPR affiliate where we were generating a, an empathetic experience for people, where we're helping people understand the dilemma for uh, folks who don't make a lot of money, who are dealing with what we call the metropocalypse. Essentially, the metro is unreliable. And so you play this game-like thing. It's really just a narrative, um, an interactive narrative. And what happens is you, you discern all the challenges. 
do you choose to take an Uber and lose the money because you spent money on Uber or lose the money because you actually needed to get to your son or daughter in time before the uh, the aftercare, aftercare, daycare charges you more money? So the idea is to increase empathy through something that's a little more engaging than the sort of slice of life story that might have preceded it. And and we're and you're um, working on these games for what purpose? You're you're, you're collecting data. We're collecting data. We're doing something we call human computation games. We're actually learning how people are perceiving the content and then informing journalists. But we're actually working with journalists so that um, that NPR game, for example, the, the WAMU game, uh, was explicitly done as part of a, an entire uh, research report around understanding how the metro breakdown is actually affecting people on a daily basis. And the idea is really to try and um, find new strategies. I think another really fascinating example is uh, a virtual reality uh, product um, called uh, Ferguson First Hand where what they've done is they've actually allowed you to see eyewitnesses from those eyewitness perspectives on um, on the events in, in Ferguson uh, so that you can kind of make your own conclusions. So it's a, a different kind of data reporting. I'm going to let you visualize what you've what actually happened and then perceive it for yourself. Yeah, no, I, I read about that and I thought it was really phenomenal. It re- always reminds me of the book To Kill a Mockingbird, which I read as a child, and it taught me as a child, something that was like, you know, long lasting, not just empathy, but walking around in some, you know, perspective um, and perspective. You know, you could look at the, you know, we could all go to the same football game and have a very different perspective about what happened on the field um, and um, and educating people about that, which is what I think your game does, I think is really fascinating. And this is explicitly what we're, we're sort of um, claiming is one of the benefits of games. Besides this opportunity for perspective, one of the things that we're finding with sort of the modern audience, this, the sort of the younger generations that are coming up, is that they have a different expectation about what it means to engage with content. So the analogy I use is that a reader reads, um, someone who watches a movie watches, and game players do. So their expectation is that they're doing. So we actually try to create things that are around um, journalistic activities but actually require people to engage in them by doing something. We call these game verbs, but the idea is that the, the engagement is far more focused because in order to do, you have to read, you have to watch, and you have to process and think critically. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, the, uh, backing into the Knight Foundation, you know, they're all about and informed and engaged. They've, been, they, they've had that motto for 60 years. Um, and so it, it's, very, it's very interesting that um, we're sort of coming back to this basic that as a good American citizen, but it's harder. It's much harder today to be informed and engaged in news because of, you know, of the amount of information that is smashed at us constantly. I mean, you, you, we right now, all of our phones are off, but I have no doubt that we each got what, like a dozen emails and 20 text messages, which, you know, 20 years ago, no one reached us right. while we were doing this. And so Acts, you know, processing and, and, and having access to all that information, I think, is part of the issue. John, I'm curious um, to hear from you about this issue of causation, right? Um, you know, there's this phenomenon, and I think that understanding how we got here helps figure out how to combat it, which I know is certainly um, um, the, the, the strategy of PolitiFact. So... I think that we can take this in a couple of different slices, and probably we could take it in about 20 or 50 different slices. Uh, At the level of looking at, say, Facebook, which, according to some preliminary analysis, about 30% of fake news, bogus stuff, flows through Facebook. 
Facebook engaged a variety of independent researchers, including PolitiFact, including Snopes, including the Associated Press. And they said, with you organizations diving in, if Facebook readers have an opportunity to flag something that they've seen in their feed and question, is it really true? And uh, then could you, independent third-party groups, could you look into these uh, posts more closely? So that's precisely what they put together. If you're on Facebook now and you see a particular item, there's the little V in the upper right-hand corner that you can click on, and it allows a user to flag a post. Then Facebook accumulates all of this stuff and produces a list that independent organizations such as PolitiFact mm -hmm. can go through and say, well, we can jump in and we can check this. And sometimes more than one organization goes in and checks it. Then our results are fed back to Facebook. And so that when users in the future see this post, it's going to come with a warning label. And that is informing users that this might be bogus. Mm -hmm. So if you see a picture of uh, former President Barack Obama in handcuffs, you will now know that that was an utterly doctored photograph. Similarly, if you see a post that shows that there's a Starbucks that put pictures of Donald Trump right inside its doorways, forcing people to walk on top of Donald Trump's face, you will now know that that was a completely photoshopped story. It never happened. It was simply the art of technology that made it look like mm -hmm. it happened. So these are the ways that we begin to take a slice out of the problems. I think the media literacy game, Lindsay, that you work with is an important piece of the puzzle, but I don't want to be remiss here. I believe that we are mm -hmm. looking at a broader phenomenon yeah. of declining trust in institutions and, and I, that we got to deal with that. And that's what I wanted to talk to politi and um, um, to you about because um, and certainly having read off the Knight Foundation, uh, they acknowledge it. I mean, they acknowledge that there is um, a significant, you know, significance, my word, but behind all of this concern is a belief by many Americans, no matter what side of the aisle, as you pointed out, you know, it's become very partisan, um, an us versus them mentality politically in our country. But no matter which side you sit on, there is a mistrust in a new source, right? But all institutions, let's not ignore this. Trust in all manner of institutions mm -hmm. has declined. Political institutions, economic institutions, news yeah. institutions, all of those have suffered over the past 30 years. Yeah, and, and in, particularly in the last eight years, I, I always come back to the statistic, which I think is just, just stunning, that c consistently... Congress's favorability rating rates at 8%, which is lower than Americans rate um, uh, Castro. Uh, when, you know, when they rated Castro, their favorability ratings, they, they rated their own, um, their own government less favorable 
than supposed adversaries or enemies of the United States. Quick, as a fact checker jumping in here, you can see a recent bump up in the approval rating of Congress. But I will simply say that when they do, that when they stack up all of the institutions mm -hmm. in the survey and in that single survey do the side by side, you are correct. But I'm going to move on. Right. And and and. and <laughs> But it's this level, it's this level and issue of trust. And I think that's a very important, that's a very interesting point that you make, John, about sort of the coalescing or the side by side, the concurrent um, lessening of trust that Americans have, not just in media and news sources, but in their government. And, you know, why is that? You know, what what is happening? Like, I, I really think that Which without... Which of us under here wants to talk right. way above our pay grade? Right. With, I think without understanding that, you can't combat it. Um, I do think that that the push of the digital age, the 24-hour news cycle, the pressure, pressure on individual journalists to push out stories has eroded accuracy. And when that happens on a, on a grander level, then people start mistrusting that news source. Another but little that, quick, just a little quick caveat is that when you ask people what what they think about news organizations, you have to also try to drill down what do they think they're talking about when they say news organizations, because some people will trust their local television news, they'll trust their local newspaper way more then they'll trust CNN, CNN mm -hmm. precisely. And so it's important to try to be clear what is it that people are mistrustful of. In general, most people think about the cable news uh, networks, so that's CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. And for one reason or another, they people will say, I don't trust those. But that's not necessarily what they think about all news organizations. We have to be careful here. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point about not lumping everybody into one. And, and on, on that case, actually, one of the other things I'd emphasize is that I do think that there's a transition in trust towards um, the popular. So essentially, uh, if enough people voted this is a great product, or if um, I went to uh, a wiki and it, a lot of people contributed to this article, so it must be true. Wikipedia is a highly trusted source, even though uh, you don't have to be a, a well-informed person to edit a Wikipedia article. So one of the things that's interesting is this change in the way we trust. So we may not trust someone um, wholly, even if they've done two years of research and they, they spent that time in the Antarctic and they've watched climate change. Instead, if there is a Wikipedia article that 50 people have contributed to, we somehow trust that more. Likewise, we'll make a, a $15 purchase based on um, the number of votes. And what's strange and what's really a, a bit troubling is the fact that we don't a lot of consumers don't understand that ultimately many of those votes may be doctored. Those mm -hmm. votes may be produced by bots. They may be people who are paid to actually mm -hmm. endorse this product. So it's a strange sort of popular trust, but also uh, a lack of critical um, examination of where that source. Yeah, and I always, and I come back to the Knight Foundation's mission for sixty years, right? A well-informed and engaged community is at the heart of the democracy. Um, and Jennifer, I want to sort of pick up with you after the commercial break about some of the things the Knight Foundation is engaged in to combat fake news. But we need to take the last break um, of our show. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Where we um, have with us um, three guests talking about fact-checking in today's news landscape. Um, we have Jennifer Preston on the line. She's from the, now- the Knight Foundation, Vice President of Journalism. We have Lindsey Grace. He's an associate professor at American University and the founding director of AU's Game Lab, um, which is a wonderful and fantastic site that I went on to play a few games, which I told everybody I failed um, last night. But it was late, so I was tired. And of course, we have John Greenberg from PolitiFact. Jennifer, if you're still with us, I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about some of the things the Knight Foundation is engaged in to combat this, the sort of the, the phenomenon we've been talking about today, fake news. Well, I think that the fact that, that we're combining this conversation with concerns about the low levels of trust in journalism and media is, is very important mm-hmm. because we must attack the, the problem from both, from both ends. And we must, as we discussed earlier, you know, remind journalists, you know, journalism 101, you know, get it right mm-hmm. uh, before, before putting it out there first. You know, that's rule number one in terms of building trust, you know, with, with your audience. So one of the things that we're, we're uh, doing is building on our work um, in an area that we call journalism engagement, where we're helping um, journalists and we're helping um, news organizations uh, do a better job just connecting more deeply with their community. And that's what uh, grant that we made that was announced earlier this week in Detroit is is all about, just involving the people of Detroit and telling the story about Detroit's recovery um, is a very powerful way to engage people around the around the journalism and build trust. But one thing that's coming up that you'll be hearing about uh, more about next week that I would just love to tell your listeners, mm-hmm. uh, Knight Foundation is going to be launching an open call for ideas to address concerns about the spread of misinformation. Right, I did see that. And, and build trust in quality journalism. And we'll be announcing a million-dollar fund next week uh, for early-stage ideas because we're looking to use this fund to identify uh, new projects, you know, people, um, and ideas of folks committed to just tackling this problem about misinformation as well as addressing the concerns about trust. And certainly we'll remind our listeners to look look for that on, on the Knight Foundation website. Um, Lindsay, in getting ready for the show, you sent us a bunch of information, and you gave us four proposed remedies um, to fake news. And I think remedy number one is one of the things I think that John was talking about also at the beginning of the show. I'd like to hear from him on this too. And that's like really focusing on and, and working to um, improve 
data-driven journalism. Tell us about that. Certainly. So the idea is that um, when we when we talk about some of these debates, uh, I love this quote. Uh, people have said sort of bringing facts to a knife fight. This idea that you've got all these facts, but people aren't ready for the facts. So they're not ready to um, to handle them at the context at which you're offering. And so data-driven journalism does a really good job of saying, um, in, inarguably, here is the result. So one of the things that, that we found has been very effective are um, what we call interactives. So we have a sort of scale, interactives, toys, and games. And interactives are basically um, ways of reporting data that allow people to ask the questions that they want to ask uh, and then get real results from real data. So um, one of the challenges, of course, uh, creating uh, reporting that that is particularly germane to that audience's need. And so these, these data-driven interactive solutions provide people an opportunity to make to tailor it as they need. Um, so a good example is New York Times a long time ago ran uh, something about whether or not you should rent or buy a home. And you can put in your own information and then you can kind of move the sliders, do all this work and say, ah, the answer for me is yes or no. And these are, again, that, that notion of doing versus uh, just reading. And people are highly engaged in those and they spend much more time than they would with a standard article. Mm. Uh, so that's one of the, the suggestions that we do make. Um, and, but you have a couple other su suggestions for um, combating fake news. Um, and um, suggestion number two is crowdsource verification, yes. which is sort of back to populism or Absolutely. popularity that you were talking about before the break. Absolutely. And you can see that more people are actually attempting the strategy. So um, uh, so the sort of buzz feeds of the world have lots of these polls. And then you can see that um, uh, certain political parties are, are actively engaging in polling as a technique to say, hey, we've, we've asked a populace. Now, the problem is whether or not you execute a scientific poll or not. As an academic, I'm going to be critical of some of these processes. But the idea is that um, people get really sort sort of excited about the idea that they contributed to the news and then got the result back from the news. So again, it's this action-oriented expectation, an engagement strategy that's around saying, I'm one of the million people who contributed to this article, uh, which is also why if you look at That's like Wikipedia, exactly. though, right? Isn't the downside of that, um, you know, that you just got someone who is, um, you know, um, misinformed or uneducated putting their two cents in that influences... Um, but, What's reported? But haven't they found that Wikipedia, by and large, is accurate? Yes. <laughs> because bad information gets spotted and corrected. That's exactly. kind of the model. Right. right. And and that, I guess, Lindsay, that's crowdsourcing, exactly. right? Exactly. What John's saying. Exactly. And you see crowdsourcing permeating all kinds of environments. So it's a it's a funding model. It's a, a model for engagement. You create a flash mob to tell people about a new product or a new activity. Uh, and um, I think what you're seeing is that there's a, 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 the, the notion is that the trust actually comes from a very large populace agreeing upon whatever facts we've decided. Mm -hmm. that, that's very interesting. John, remember at the beginning of the show, um, you were saying we just don't have enough data yet, right, to figure on out fake news <laughs> on to, fake news to understand tell, exactly tell us, what's going on. Right, tell us what you mean by that. Like, what, what's what's the data hole? Well, I think that uh, we have problems of defining fake news. So I think that surveys going forward are going to have to do have a, have a cleaner uh, grid in front of them for saying. This is very much fake news. This is kind of fake news. This isn't fake news. This is propaganda or what have you, or this is accurate. So I think that we're going to need... Um, it's like your truth clearer, meter on yeah, PolitiFact, right? Exactly. Um, and then we're going to need a lot better information about how it moves around, how many people actually respond to it, what they think of it when they read it. I mean, you can say a bunch of people saw an item. But if 90% of them discarded it, 
then it didn't have as much impact as the top number would have you say. So those are the sorts of questions that we want to begin to uh, drill down on. And certainly, we also, based on the preliminary information, want to be able to identify the nodes that are actually generating a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that is flowing around. Uh, there is some evidence that it's basically 2% of users are generating wow. something like 70% of content mm. in that category. That's early. Don't take that to the bank. But those are the sorts of questions that you want to begin to get at. Mm -hmm. Who's doing that research? I'm sorry. I think a variety. I've seen it come out of Stanford. I've seen it come out of uh, Northwestern. I know that there's a very big initiative taking shape in Europe right now because they are worried about the same phenomenon that we experienced in our election. And you've got elections coming up in France and Holland and in Germany. They think it's a big deal. So there's a lot of uh, eyes being trained on this set of problems. Mm. Lindsay. And I was just going to say, one of the really progressive approaches to this is what we call human computation games, essentially crowdsourcing the computation that's involved in verifying content by actually playing games. So that notion, that game that we created, Factitious, was explicitly about having people play a game that helps them identify whether or not it's opinion or advertising, if it's what kind of fake news it is or isn't. And then essentially we feed that into a database and then report back to the communities that produce the content to say this is how people are reading your content and this is how your content can be uh, adjusted to meet those needs. And human right. computation games have been very effective in really complex problems that normally we couldn't send to a supercomputer or we couldn't write a good algorithm for. Right. So th that's the game that I tried last yes. night and failed, factitious. <laughs> is it, can anyone go online and play that game and Absolutely. feed into your Absolutely. and it's feed like, into your um, yes. data bank? Yeah, so they just have to go to uh, jolt.augamelab.com, and uh, all of our games around news are actually there, as well as a bunch of resources around our findings. Right, and so, um, and so, what you're looking to see is how people answer the question, because what data are you drawing? How, what's the data um, that you collate? from the way I answered the question. Sure, so there's essentially five factors that we're using to help people understand what is sort of verifiable or not verifiable, what is quote unquote fake news. And essentially it's, uh, it's source, it's headline, it's uh, the tone of the article, it's the image. A lot of people in, in social media spaces in particular just they see an image and they say, ah, I'm gonna verify this or not. Uh, and the idea is really to try and have people practice that skill and then we feed that into our database and we identify their demographics and we start to say, uh, people who read this in three seconds assume it is fake, people who read it in seven seconds don't. Interesting. Had I known all that, maybe I would have <laughs> scored better when I played your game last night, factitious. But I really do want to um, send our listeners to the game because it is a live game. Yes. Yep. Um, and you are collecting data out of it. Yes. And um, so I think there's great value there um, for for you to be able to have as many people play the game as possible. There's great there's value to to all of us. Um we are approaching the end of our show, and I want to thank all of our guests for joining us. Jennifer, are you still with us? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm right here. It's been a great conversation. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that we need strong investigative reporting and, and good, solid journalism now more than ever. Yeah, no, and, and, um, and certainly everyone, they, that, that's sort of the, the battle cry, and people should um, support the Knight Foundation and Play Factitious, and John Greenberg from Politico, you guys do a great job there. Or even PolitiFact. But, <laughs> and, I, and I would like to say, 
subscribe to your local newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yes. that that's one of the most important things you can do. Okay, great. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.